is Martha. And this is Colby on Martha and Colby Grow Up. A podcast where we talk about the things that made us who we are and where we're going in the future. Because every week we're finding a new way that we're growing up. What's up, everybody? This is Colby on Martha and Colby Grow Up, the podcast where 20-somethings navigate life apart together, super apart this week, because Martha's taking a little well-deserved vacation, put a little asterisk by well-deserved, but it's just me hosting today, and I'll be holding it down for this month. Little podcast business before we get started. If you give us $15 one time or over the course of this podcast, you can choose a podcast topic. We'll talk about pretty much anything. Uh, Martha keeps talking about the Snyder Cut. I don't know why, but if you do pay us, we'll talk about it again. I'm not sure why you would want us to do that, but we would, question mark. Uh, There's going to be a link to the PayPal, Venmo, and Square in the podcast notes, so check that out. We'd very much appreciate it. All that money will go towards pretty much editing and hosting. So yeah, it's time for our question of the week of the month, which for this month is, what is your most basic movie opinion? I straight up stole, stole this one off of Twitter. And mine is that 2001 The Space Odyssey is a good movie and I like it and it's cool. And yes, I did watch it in high school and I don't care. It's a good movie. I like it. Uh, I wonder what our guest Ariel thinks. Uh, about 2001 A Space Odyssey or just basic movie opinion? Both. I've never seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. I don't really care to watch movies by people who are terrible people, right? Fair. After what it came out that Stanley Kubrick straight up abused Shelley Duvall during The Shining. And I was just like, I can't watch his movies. Oh, Kubrick did make The Shining, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. So I... Another movie I haven't seen. <laughs> he, he he basically tortured the woman for the entirety of that set. And she was like never the same. Jeez. It's truly, truly awful. And, and it's just like, I don't know. I don't want to get into it. That's kind of why I haven't like dove into the old the old good lord that came out 20 years ago the old x-men movies it's like i don't think i need to yeah i think i'm good on them anyway most basic movie opinion uh my most basic movie opinion is um i have the first one is that the the original star wars is is like a very good movie like it's i personally think it's the best of all of them which is at this point not like a super popular opinion but it's like you watch that and you look, you think contextually in 1977, like that is a very good, weirdly like revolutionary movie in so many different ways. Uh, my second one is that Zack Snyder is absolute, like he's, he's, he's quite terrible at his job and he makes terrible movies. Ariel, you've been on the show before, but he is a writer, podcaster, YouTuber extraordinaire, just doing it all. And I think at least specializing in media criticism, which is what we are talking about today. Yeah. Uh, what were you saying about Zack Snyder? Oh, um, I totally forgot. Uh, but I don't love his movies. I, I think they're like at, it's a very like super low floor in very very mediocre ceiling like he can put a movie together but i don't think i'd ever say anything more glowing about his movies besides that was a movie 
So the reason why I think it's it's like pretty basic, and I don't I don't think this is right. I think ninety nine percent of the movie opinions I have, besides like I don't know, Jackie Chan is good at making movies and stunts, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like I feel very strongly about that. But he doesn't understand what makes a good movie. He is very skilled at the aspects that make movies look visually appealing um, in terms of framing, how, like how to frame things, how to make things look really interesting. He's a music video director. That's where he started. But like, if you asked him, like, what, what, what's your favorite thing about Superman? And he'll probably be like, his immense power or something completely like, like he just doesn't, he doesn't get it. Like he doesn't understand and that is kind of like, but it's just like basically he's he has no idea how to how to make superhero movies. He has no idea what what makes those movies work, what makes them good, why we enjoy superheroes. He's got no clue, none. So let's dig into media criticism as a as a topic, just very very broadly. You mentioned that you wanted to talk about the the role of criticism in our hashtag society, which is something I've been thinking about a lot in like the past week or so when we, when I've been thinking about this show coming up. So what do you, what made you write that down as something to talk about? So I what made me really get into media criticism is that I would always I would I would love something for you know for example. Avatar The Last Airbender, something that we reviewed, right? Or Lord of the Rings, an even better example. I loved Lord of the Rings. So those three films, Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King. And when you're 11, when that first movie came out, when I was 11, I was 30 years old now, uh, 11, 12, 13, you, like, I don't know why I like this thing. And I think it's important for audiences to be able to understand why something is appealing and for audiences as they grow to understand why something that's a kid's show uh aspects of what makes a kid's show good should no longer like be applicable to to things like as you get older to adult media so when when you're like this movie doesn't make any sense and somebody's like well yeah it's a kid's show that's okay when it's like paw patrol but it's not okay with like the Avengers. And the reason I, I, I say that is in terms of the role of criticism. And as two men of color, two people of color here, when we do not call out when something is made poorly and you see money on screen and you just say, oh, it looks good. And so therefore it is good. What it does is it allows mediocrity to continue to thrive. And that usually comes in the form of rich white people. And it's frustrating because you and I, we look at these directors, people like Ryan Coogler and Chloe Zhao, Oscar winning, recently directing Marvel movies, right? I think both of those two directors, it's like they had to be two of the best directors working today to get a shot at this. Meanwhile, directors who are just okay Louis uh, Louis Lettier, who did those awful Now You See Me movies, did The Hulk. Kenneth Branagh, he's okay. Does Thor, John Favreau before Iron Man, what did he do? Like, it's just, like, it, you know, so 
it's really frustrating when we don't call out things that are made poorly. When the when the audience at large doesn't know that, it becomes acceptable. And when that happens, mediocrity is allowed to thrive. And who does that who does that support? The establishment, right? And that establishment does not look like you and me, Colby. And that's why I feel like it's really, really important nowadays for for smart, uh, diverse criticism. How did you get started? Like, what were what were the first things that led you to want to, for lack of a better word, dissect or dive into the media that you consume? I think part of it was, you know, I, I would watch a movie and I would walk out of it being like, this was terrible. The characters were inconsistent. Motivations didn't make sense. Plotting was bad. Huge plot hole. Whatever, whatever. And I walk out of those movies and every single person I went with, my, my, you know, my, my friends, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my siblings, a lot of the times they'd be like, oh, I thought it was good. I thought it was fine. And it was like, did you really think it was good? Or did you enjoy seeing a movie? A movie, right? Did you enjoy seeing your fa- did you enjoy seeing Will Smith on screen? And 90% of the time the answer is I enjoyed seeing Will Smith on screen. Or I really like that we made the flash and we put him into a live action film. Not that was a good film featuring the flash. It was just I I felt like I was uh what's that for the, the Zoolander? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Um <laughs> And so what I started to do is like I started to like it's like all right I think this is garbage so I started like reading um, I guess it was what, mid like late two thousands uh, so I started like reading blog posts and reviews and stuff and most of the time like even if I didn't agree I liked that the person had this well thought out constructed uh, opinion with examples right? Process over results. You can give a movie two stars that I think is five stars, but if you told me that you didn't like X, 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 and X, and those things are completely reasonable things to say, right? Like I, I didn't, I didn't think that this character should have made that decision, right? You know, sometimes that's reasonable. Sometimes it's not. Um, I will, I will most of the time respect that. I just, I, I could not handle I really don't like liking something just because somebody's in it. Like that's kind of like where it stemmed from. I don't care that Batman's on screen, who was my top, one of my top favorite superheroes, when he doesn't look anything like Batman, like the Batman that I know as a character, right? I th- and I think part of it, Kobe, is that I grew up a big, big, big superhero fan, and you know, in two thousand and two thousand one, we had X Men, we had Spider Man. And suddenly, my favorite things are transitioning to film. They're being transformed in this way. And a lot of the time, they're not being transformed in a way that is truly representative. I think that had a huge part to do with it, too. I think for me, I kind of got this bug taking AP literature in high school. And my teacher, she was amazing. She was one of my favorite teachers. Uh, She had a giant life-size uh legolas uh, <laughs> in her room uh and when i walked in the room the first day i was like i'm really gonna like this class um but one of our summer reading books for that year was how to read literature like a professor i do not like reading non-fiction books and that is one of my favorite books i've ever read 
just because it unlocked a world of not just like reading like novels, uh, not just like reading fiction, but like watching TV and noticing, like learning what a trope is for the fir- for the first time, uh, learning what um, how how these storytellers utilize things in our world to get across ideas. It's, it was just so interesting to me and something that I never really put serious thought into. Um, up until then, and it was just a, a spiral from there of hidden and alternate meanings and coding and like how how to represent things, especially in fantasy worlds, which I think that book touches on a lot. Um, and that's kind of how I started. I just thought it was really cool. Um, and I feel like more people. I keep telling Martha to read that book, um, especially while we were doing Avatar. Because um, I feel like it it helps a lot to realize or just to learn how writers write, what the mindset is of a writer when they are crafting a story or crafting a world. Yeah, that book is actually on my Goodreads like to read list. Like I haven't read it yet, but it's it's sitting there uh, waiting for, waiting for me to finally go get it. I do like that idea, right? It, it's this idea of uh, of real critical thinking and critical analysis, and it almost it all stems um obviously it, it's not always fantasy novels but right it all stems from from being able to critically analyze what you are reading they um one of the things that you will learn if you ever go to school for, to become a teacher uh, which i have they will always tell you if you want to be a better teacher what you have to do is take like english classes or like literary criticism classes or you know how to teach there's like classes on how to teach english like because for the exception of your very specific advanced math classes nearly every subject you have to learn is based in how an individual is able to critically analyze literature whether it be your textbook your nonfiction reading, the fantasy novel you're happening to be doing in your creative writing class. It all stems from your ability to analyze what you have read and break it down contextually. Um, obviously, that could be you could be reading history book, you could be a sociology major, you could be a psych major, philosophy, science in a lot of ways. Re- you have to break down research reports. Um, case studies, you have to do all these things. All of that stems from literary criticism in one way or another, Liter- uh, c- contextual analysis, things like that. Or just straight up reading comprehension, just, uh, just understanding the words that are on the page and the order that they are, <laughs> that they are on, on the page is so important. And it's important in the way that I think what the main thing that book got me to realize is there are themes to everything that is written, whether it be history, like you said, economics, uh, fiction, nonfiction, there are themes. And when it comes to criticism, a lot of it for me is, okay, so you're setting up this one theme, you're trying, it feels like you're trying to tell me this, like X, (laughs) the the movie I'm thinking about right now is Wonder Woman. Um, (laughs) It's like, it seems like you're trying to tell me this thing, and now, all of a sudden, at, at the end, in the third act, 
you're telling me something entirely different and that makes sense. Yeah, it looks cool, but it doesn't follow the story that I think you were trying to tell me. And I think that incongruity is, is really what took me down the rabbit hole of storytelling. Yeah, and, and that, that kind of goes on to what I said about Zack Snyder, right? Where if you were to read the best, most recommended Superman comics ever, uh, the most beloved stories featuring that character, or or even this origin, right? There are a couple of things to take away. One, um, the character is kind of defined by his kindness and his belief in this in humanity and his willingness to sacrifice anything he can, you know, even even though he's a superman, he sacrifices all his time and energy into saving people. You watch Man of Steel, good lord, that is not that is not what you get from that film. You you get somebody who is unbridled, hesitant, so full of doubt in his ability to be strong enough, which Superman doesn't even care about. It's how Superman's whole thing is, how can I save the person in front of me? The second thing is if you were to read any Superman origin, and if you were to look, take five seconds and to look into his into his uh, creators, you would know that there were a couple of Jewish guys making a Moses allegory. And in the entirety of Man of Steel, all you get is is Jesus allegories. And it's just like this like how did you come to this conclusion? Right? You're trying to adapt this thing that is beloved everywhere, and this is the first chance we've gotten since 1972 or whatever year that Christopher Reeves Superman movie came out. And you've completely misunderstood the assignment. Right. And that's kind of why I like like that's it all comes from like media criticism. And and in my opinion, people did not take him to task enough for that in 2013, Zack Snyder in 2013. And so what did we get? We got him making and producing Wonder Woman, Batman, Batman v Superman, Justice League, and they're all misrepresentations of what those characters actually should be like. It's funny that you bring up the Bible, the he, the uh, Christian and the Hebrew Bible, because I think that if more people had a stronger grasp of just critical analysis of text, that might solve solve a, a lot, a lot of problems with with how how like the teaching of those texts comes across. Like, I uh, yeah, when I have Bible study with my friends, like the first thing I try to look for is like how these things are written. Like like a couple months ago, we were looking at. Uh, it was one of the epistolary letters that Paul wrote at the, the end of the New Testament uh, when he's writing to the churches of the different uh, places that he had been. And it's literally written like, not like a synthesis, but almost like a research paper, like an argument paper where he starts with like an intro and then goes into his thesis statement and then is back, backs it up with evidence and then ends with a conclusion. And my friends are like, Colby, why are why are you looking at this like like you're grading somebody's English paper? I'm like, because when people write now, they are writing in the same exact format that this dude was writing 2,000 years ago. And that's important to realize that these writing traditions are so far, like, come from so long ago and are so effective that we are still reading this now. And I, I feel like if, I feel like more people need to take that sort of approach to to reading any religious text honestly 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, uh, you know, you you have a background in church. I literally went to a year of Bible school and went to uh, the worst university in America, Liberty University. So I kind of have, I have that training, right? That I have that mindset of how did, how did they like look at the text? And it's, it's so weird because they just don't get it. Like it's, it's weird that they're just so hung up on details and like, um, what, what was this original word and how did, what did they mean by this? And it's just like, well, you know, you've, you've lost the, the forest among the trees, but, um, but yeah, you know, it's, as somebody who who loves who, who who's who really committed at a certain point to to being a teacher like I'm no longer one right now I'm not uh eliminating the possibility of me being one in the future by profession anyway it's the most important thing because if we can't figure out if we can't even look at our art critically right and and I don't mean Paw Patrol or playing Call of Duty. I, I mean, like, even our superheroes, our modern-day myths have an incredible amount of symbolism. Like, if we can't look at those things critically, then then ultimately we will never... It's, it's, a, it's, it's almost a, a snowball effect of not looking at anything critically. Yeah, I, I feel... In a world where, at least in, in early 2016, the most... A lot of people's probably only real interrogation of uh, the surveillance state in the United States was uh, Captain America Winter Soldier in Civil War. <laughs> like, I feel like these are it's important to have people who can contextualize that for 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 the masses. Yeah. And, and so, like, I'd love to, to look at that example specifically. Right. I'm, I'm assuming if you listen to this, that you that you know of these major pop culture things like Captain America and the Winter Soldier and all of these um, like real sweaty comic book nerd dudes who are like, don't politicize my superheroes. I just want superheroes. Like if we can explain to them that the reason you love these things is because they are contextually meant to portray this certain theme symbol Right, whatever, in terms of like fighting against fascism and Nazism and all that stuff, like perhaps they can recognize that type of thing in real life. Oh my gosh, I I love, I love Captain America and Superman and you know and and all these things. Like like you know I, I love when when good triumphs over evil and I love Star Wars and I love when they beat you know when when. When the Rubble Alliance takes down the Death Star and the Stormtroopers, it's just like, if you're on the good guy side for all of these things and yet you're out here on the steps of Washington on January 6th, like there's just such weird dissidence. And and I think I think part of it with media criticism, it's it's the way to get people to start that thought process that perhaps can expand into different aspects of their life. So let's talk about the state of modern media criticism are you familiar with the channel cinemasins yes i am familiar with them and their particular <laughs> brand of of uh, uh let's call it crit criticism yeah thank you for calling it the brand because i don't want to make this like a takedown of cinemasins because it's it's not really about cinemasins it's about the type of of watcher and reader that that cinemasins produces right 
it, it's about the uh, trying to like hyper analyze every single like second at trying to look for quote unquote plot holes, look for um, these discrepancies that don't really matter. Like you said earlier, missing the forest for the trees. Because what's really disappointing about that type of criticism is one, the first CinemaSense videos were so funny and so smart and so clever before they just evolved into what it is now. And I I feel like when people, uh, how do I want to say this? People who do not take the time from what I have observed to read about what makes stories compelling when all of that they're seeing for criticism is cinema sense, it kind of misses the point of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so weird because they want to kind of nitpick. And I think that's the appropriate word, right? Nitpick Mm -hmm. the little things that don't add up. And I, I only tend to do that when the filmmaker prides themselves on either details or uh, kind of this is this is the thing in the real world. Like I'm going to nitpick Christopher Nolan. Why? Because he loves details. He tells us to look for details and he always wants to set his things in like very, very uh, real world scenarios, right? Like if you want to give me Batman in the real world and tell me what he'd look like in the real world, well, I'm going to treat it that way and I'm not going to treat it like um, like a superhero movie, right? But what Cinemasins does is they they really they're really just they're uh, they're playing gotcha they're they're nitpicky and it's it sucks because that's kind of they were forced to devolve into that yeah it it was flanderization yeah yeah and I personally like I prefer it when uh, it's it's they're they're never like yeah but like the, they they're they're never like thematically this is the whatever 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 it's always just like this person. Um, the calendar doesn't match up and and Batman technically killed this many people, you know, things like that. And it's fine. And it's a specific brand. I just don't do people do people think that is, quote unquote, like film criticism? Yes, they do. <laughs> Which is terrifying. I mean, it's not terrifying. It's not the end of the world. But, you know, it's 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 very frustrating. It, it's frustrating when I get on Twitter after one of these big tentpole movies comes out. And they're like, well, did you did you notice that about the 45 minute mark that uh, they said it was Friday three days ago? And then the next day it's like Saturday. And it's like, it doesn't it doesn't matter. <laughs> like that, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it, it only and to me, it only matters. Like I said, if 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 you've prided yourself on that, I think Game yeah. of Thrones is probably the most recent perpetrator of this. Right. Where it's just like. You, your first seasons were reliant upon the tension that distance brought, right? I want to save the king. I am a five days ride away. Mm-hmm. And I cannot, like, there was so much drama and tension by the fact that I cannot go ride and save in time, right? I cannot save people from this army because they're only 10 miles away and I'm 50, whatever, and then in by the final season, people are teleporting. Things show up out of nowhere. It's fast travel. They they literally started fast traveling. <laughs> and the explanation was, oh, our characters forgot. 
And, and that's kind of like, and those, uh, there's a, the reason why I, you know, I, I fight against mediocre things being hailed as good is because of people like Benioff and, and Weiss, right? Because they did not deserve that station. It was clear that the show was greater than the sum of its parts and it was definitely greater than them. And they were not quote unquote qualified. They were like, oh yeah, we treated Game of Thrones as film school. Like there's there's a whole interview on how they didn't know what they were doing. They treated it as film school. We had this really short pitch and we got approved. And all we had to do was answer a question from George. And then we were able to do the show. And it's just like such a slap in the face to very, very qualified people who could have made that thing and could have made it better and would have and loved it perhaps, right? Um but yeah, I don't even remember what we're talking about. Um oh, the, the state st- of this the state of criticism today. Okay, so here is my my concern with kind of the state of 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 media criticism today. It is rooted in a historical precedent institution of film criticism. Mm-hmm. Brought on uh in part by people like Roger Ebert and and Gene Siskel, brilliant writers in their own way. But the vast majority of notable film critics that we read have been to film school. And I personally, I think the state of, of modern film criticism, movie reviewers, YouTubers, blah, 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 the vast majority of them come from the film system. And therefore, their worldview is this incredibly like narrow thing. This is how we make movies. This is how they should be. This is how they should be made. When you know for a fact that when you get somebody from out of that system and you give them the time and resources, the art is incredible. I'm thinking Guillermo del Toro and uh, Cuaron and those, those Mexican directors who did not come from this really American westernized one. They took their... And then just made a run on Best Director right. <laughs> year after right. year after year. You know, Cuaron and, and Del Toro are three of the best filmmakers ever. Their casts are diverse. Their storytelling methods are unique. Del Toro is the freakiest dude in Hollywood. He's one of my personal favorites. And they were they were absolutely like industry shattering and yet we can only view their films or the world at large only views their films on how palatable they are to our western film criticism palette and it's crazy because if you watch pan's labyrinth if you watch something like crouching tiger if you watch something like pacific rim for example which is way out there that movie is Oscar production levels, Oscar caliber and production levels. It's about giant robots fighting giant monsters. It's very Asian. It's very Japan, whatever, whatever. But like, why don't, why, why aren't we giving that its flowers, right? You, you, you watch something like Logan, you watch something like, um, like the winter soldier, for example, I don't think the winter soldier is as good as those things. I'm just, you know, but like, why aren't we treating that? like cinema. And I think the reason is because cinema is dictated by a very specific set of people. 
people in privilege, people in power. Um, but like, like I said, when somebody comes along, I think besides the, the three, the, is it three Mexican directors who are so incredible? You've got, um, Bong Joon-ho who film nerds will tell you, oh man, he's, he's so good. And he just came on. Like, I was like, I was sitting in, in like my grandparents' basement watching old boy on a bootleg DVD. I could have told you 20 years ago that this guy was revolutionary, you know? The dude's good, and he's been out. He's been out here for a while. This is not new. This is this no. isn't new. <laughs> you watch, you watch, um, and I think I think Jackie Chan in in, in this video. I watched the clip in every frame of painting, and the the, the blend of physical uh, of action comedy that Jackie Chan does, and he's people, and he says people come up to me and say, Jackie, you're so good. Jackie, you're so good. How are you so good? And I tell them. Like, yeah, I'm good, but it's because my studio gives me the time and money to be able to make this thing the way I need to make it. So that when I do this incredible stunt, I am allowed by my studio to do that take 30 times to get it right. And if, you know, any any honest reviewer will will watch a Jackie Chan film and tell you this guy is doing crazy things nobody's ever done before. Suddenly Mad Max and Fast and Furious do it. And, and Tom Cruise, suddenly Tom Cruise... Is the king of stunts. How did we get here? How is he the king of stunts? That reminds me of this interview that Barry Jenkins just did with Jesus and Mero when he was talking, he was talking about making um Beale Street, if Beale Street could talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said they were they were on they were on set and they were just filming and filming and filming, and then they didn't realize like how much, how like how many. I mean, I'm sure they realized, but they were like, "Oh, we ha- we're take- doing a lot of takes, a whole whole bunch of takes," and they said they used up all of the memory in the state of Georgia. <laughs> like <laughs> they just they just like used up all the. They ran out of SD cards. <laughs> like we we used it all, but that movie is incredible, and it's incredible because he had the resources to make it as good as he wanted to make it, and that's. That's what it takes to make a good movie. These things are works that take, I mean, not, of course, there are like the the small budget movies that, that break out and are amazing, but there's a reason why you go to the movies and most movies you see, you're like, yeah, that's pretty good. Because there are so, 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 and you mentioned this a lot, so many more that are just bad yeah. <laughs> that never, that never even get it, get to that point. Um, there's a reason that when you go to the movies for the most part, you're like, yeah, that's pretty, that's at least okay. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of what frustrates me a lot where I listen to these movie podcasts and I tell people, it's like, it's like, yeah, you know, they've got some good opinions, but they're, they're essentially like, it's a lot of it is just like the establishment white film criticism, right? Because there's, there's no two ways about it. Uh, if you, if you, if I said the word film, bro. A very specific type of person comes into your mind. And now sometimes film bros are people of color, but only because they are working within this very, very white system. And they haven't broken out of it yet. And my one of my biggest hangups is that if you listen to a movie review and the entire time they're just talking about, man, like this thing didn't really work and that performance wasn't really great and – you know, the script didn't make any sense and the dialogue was really bad and the character motivations were awful. But you know what? B plus. <laughs> and it's like, I, you know, and if you were to listen to as many film reviews as I have, 
I I would listen to film reviews of movies that I've never seen because I, I love to get that sense of like what is what is my circle of like person of color filmmakers and film reviewers saying and what is like the quote unquote establishment saying often very two different things often very two different things and it's just so weird for them to for them to acknowledge how quote unquote hard it is to make a movie but completely like just just completely be like yeah you know i didn't like i I thought this was pretty bad and and i didn't like this and and it's just like well to me especially when it's made by somebody for example like steven spielberg where it's just like this dude is like this steven spielberg was allowed to make ready player one Oh, I hate that movie. Oh, I hate I It's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. <laughs> Somebody should have been able to go in that process and be like, hey, this is bad, right? It's not, it's not 2000, it's not 1999. We're not making The Phantom Menace and we don't, you know, it's not like, you know, even apparently George Lucas, he, he came out after the first screening and he's like, did I really make this movie? Like, this is bad. Like, it's not that. It's like, we should have been able to see at every step of the way, that Ready Player One was going to be a bad movie. I could tell from the trailer alone that was going to be a bad movie. And yet, here he is making it. Now, perhaps a bad example because Steven Spielberg has really earned that cachet to do what he wants. Um, but I think more of people like Zack Snyder, people like uh, Colin Trevorrow, right, who just make these things and keep getting these incredible big budget second chances when we know for a fact that Asian men and women or, you know, people, excuse me, black people, Asian people, Latinx people, they're not given these chances. And when they are, they're spectacular. If Beale Street could talk, Roma, Pan's Labyrinth, right? Chloe Zhao's films, whatever, like Ryan Coogler's films, the fast, the best Fast and Furious movies are all people of color directing them and it's just like uh, you know it's just i don't understand what we're why we continuously just say you know what everything was bad except the one performance and this cool scene b plus that to me is kind of the indictment of the modern day state of uh film criticism so let's wrap up with how you approach something that you know that you're going to have to talk or write about let's say hey uh sci-fi call they want you to write write something else uh check him out on sci-fi sci-fi.com um, <laughs> so uh let, let's say okay you you have to you're watching a movie and you're gonna have to write about it what's your approach if i were to review this is me at my a game I'm watching for Fast Nine, whatever. I don't know. No, that's not a good. That's not a good example. Uh, I'm watching Man of Steel. I'll watch it. No notes. No nothing. How did that movie make me feel? What did I feel? What did I? What was like really? What really stuck out? I think about those things, and if I'm really on my A game, I boot it up again right away. Right. This is something that I've been able to do in the pandemic, and not so much outside of it. Because like I can't like go to the theater like I'm not sitting I'm not sitting in the theater but if, I, if I'm home I just put it on again and my process for the second time is to one really focus on the things that made me feel one way or another for Man of Steel it would be that that scene where Superman's dad sacrifices himself hate it uh, the final battle scene between Superman and General Zod loved it 
um, for different reasons. But really, my main thought points are, besides that, right, besides really getting, feeling the movie twice, getting it, really absorbing it, are the people in this film talking like real people is number one. Because if not, that tells me that an algorithm could have written that film. And I hate, like, I, that's kind of, to me, is like enemy number one. Um, Quick timeout. Sure. 30 second timeout. How do you feel about Wes Anderson? Dialogue. Just Wes Anderson dialogue as a style. As So so to me, much like Tar- Tarantino, who whom I hate with a thousand, uh, with the fear of a thousand sons, to me, it's okay if it's a style, right? If it's, if you're very, like, you know, when you hear... Um, when you hear old school Superman talk and you're like, nobody talks like that. I was like, well, that's how that they, they want Superman to like, uh, I think the better example is Steve Rogers in, in the Avengers films when he, he talks like an old timer. That's okay. If your style says we want to talk this really weird, specific, very articulate, eloquent thing that Ray Fiennes does in the Grand Budapest Hotel. But like, that's. Wes Anderson's thing. That's okay. Much like a slow-mo flourish is Zack Snyder's thing. I may not like it, but that's kind of his thing. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to take points off for, you know, I I might take points off because he does it too much perhaps, but the Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, very, you know, snappy dialogue. Joss Whedon does it a lot. I'm okay with that. Um, To me, it's when, when you're like your film, you're trying to really expose, uh, exposit something and you kind of like, you can tell the writer ran into a wall and is just expositing it really poorly because, well, cause no one would talk like that. My favorite thing is when John Green gets his criticism a lot. Cause he, he writes in the voice of teenagers a lot and people say, uh, teenagers don't write like that <laughs> or teenagers don't talk like that. <laughs> Which is valid. Uh, and then at the end of the day, he says, pretty much, screw you, it's my book. I'm going to write him how I want to, <laughs> I want to write him. But I think at this point, it's it's definitely a style where these these 16-year-olds go on these long, long monologues. And it makes me laugh every time I read this. Like, I've never met a teenager this eloquent anyway. <laughs> um, I don't... This, this my... Uh, the pass I give it is is taken away if the, th- the person they are writing is a person of color mm. or even John Green, even if it's a teen, like if you want to, if you want to write teens, guess what? Do the work and find out how teens talk, right? Like, sorry, like I'm not, you know, suspension of disbelief. I can always tell. Yeah. There's this, there's this joke, uh, men writing women, like a, like a Twitter account. Oh, that's hilarious. It makes me laugh every time. Yeah. That's awful. It's awful and hilarious. Speaking of the other, the other Green brother, though, he was like, I w- he said in one of his books that he was writing, he was like, he sent it to like three different women. He was like, does this make sense? It's like, please, I don't want to end up on that Twitter account. I just want to yeah. make sure that like this, I just want to make sure that like this is something that like women talk like. And he's like, he sent it around to like his, um, his group of advisors that was helping him write that, that first duology. And they were like, yeah, it's pretty good. Then the book comes out. He ends up on a Twitter page. He's like, dang it. I tried. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, you, you know, you can always, you can always tell when, Oh yeah. uh, uh, A white person writes a person of color. Um, so are, 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 do you have real believable people? And now 
It's different, and like I said, with Wes Anderson, it's different, I think, with Edgar Wright at times. But broad strokes. Yeah. Uh, if your film is not incredibly stylized, then I, I need them to sound like people. And one of the other things that I really look at, because, you know, when you write for a bunch of sites, you, you kind of just have to do broad strokes. Judging by your marketing and your characterization and your dialogue and, and your, the, you know, what, what your movie's about. What is your what is your movie trying to say? What is its theme? What's the symbolism you're trying to give me? Right? What do you what does the the movie creator think your film is saying? And then what is the film actually saying? And if those two mix, you you get a li- you get a lot more. You I forgive a lot more. The Fast and Furious movies, you forgive a lot because you, those films know exactly what they're giving you. If you're coming into that theater thinking you're going to get a plot that makes a ton of sense, sorry. But if your action scenes and your comedy and your fight scenes are good enough to forgive the things that don't make sense, we're going to do it. But like if they don't, right, like I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a good – I think Wonder Woman is perhaps a really good example of this, that first Wonder Woman film that came out in 2017, I think it was, that it's like – we we need to like we, we I think the the theme of the movie wants to be um, people can be terrible but people can be good right like the God of War you know it, it turns out he's trying to push this fight whatever this battle but it turns out that human beings are inherently terrible but there's there's a lot of good in people and that good can shine through this awfulness of war I think that's that's essentially what Wonder Woman is about in a lot of ways. And I think that's kind of what the movie's telling you. But that's not what the third act says at exactly. all. Exactly. <laughs> when you watch the third act, the theme, the, the message you get is that my love for Steve Trevor is what gives me my power. She, she is able to do it because she loves Steve. Tre- like, it's so weird. It's such, it was such a weird, like disconnect. Um, from it, like I, I don't, I don't know. It's what, very what? I, like in my in my head canon, the movie ends when Steve Trevor says it's not about deserve, um, and then it cuts the credits, <laughs> then the movie's over, um, and I would have been a lot happier. Yeah, so it, it really, it's it's is your, you know, um, what are you trying to say? And what are you actually saying? I think the boys fails in this, right? I think. The Boys is supposed to be the scathing commentary on capitalism and superheroes in the real world, right? Those those two things. Um, one, there's not a ton of capitalistic commentary in there besides – Besides they work in an office building. Yeah. And two, there is I, – I recently saw this TikTok and it was brilliant. It was about Tropic Thunder and how the reason why the Robert Downey Jr. blackface is not, uh, quote-unquote, offensive – Right? Why? Why he quote unquote get gets away with it is because the the character in whose name escapes me the black the black character the rapper every step of the way every step of the way he's like dude what are you doing yeah every step of the way he calls out how ridiculous he is okay I don't think the boys does that at all there is no character telling us in that thing that everybody is bad right contrast that with Invincible where there's a lot of like the frailty of human life in the face of incredible power. You get that in the boys, but they really, really revel in it. They really, really love to show it off, which is kind of the, it's, it's not, that's not the point. 
in Invincible, when you watch that show, you are horrified at the power of superheroes. And even though we have a superhero as a main character, he is horrified. And it's wild because they almost like have some of the same exact gore in The Boys and Invincible. Not all the way because, you know, Invincible's anime. They can mm-hmm. do a little bit more with that. But like because the characters are kind of fit into at least the characters powers fit into tropes they kind of can do the same types of the same types of set pieces mm-hmm. and it hits so much harder in invincible than it does in the boys because the boys just feels so unattached from the from the emotion the emotionality of what's happening and, it, and when invincible really draws drills into like you said the horror like yeah. the the finale of invincible is a horror movie like it is it's terrible it's terrible uh, but it's so but it's smart. so good yes. it's so smart it's so good and i don't i don't love like overly gory stuff but i could i mean i i probably am not going to go back and watch that finale because it's in my head <laughs> enough that I, don't, I don't know if i ever need to go back and watch it again but I feel like I think about it at least three times a week since I've watched it because it's it was that effective. Oh man, you mentioned something um in its lip. Oh, the blackface. Um when, going back to like why criticism is important, it reminds me of when Netflix took the episode of uh community out where um Ken Jong is dressed up as the dark elf mm-hmm. in uh in the Dungeons and Dragons episode. And because it's like, oh, he's in blackface, you gotta take it off because it's offensive. It's like, no, he walks into the room and every character looks at him horrified. <laughs> like, what are you wearing? And and the commentary of not only the blackface, but of DD itself, of having those sorts of races that mm-hmm. exist in D D. I'm not sure if they're in the fifth edition, if Dark Elves are in the fifth edition. I think they took oh. him out. The, I think the they took him out of like one race is evil, like a whole race of people is evil. Yeah. Yeah. I think they took it out. That sort that is the sort of stuff is of why this stuff isn't is important. But Ariel, thank you so much for talking to me uh, about uh, media criticism. We talk about this so much outside of you know <laughs> having do. microphones in front of our faces. Um, this is kind of just the stuff that we talk about. This and um, whether or not uh, Luca is better than Trey Young. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> but where can the people find you? Tell, tell them all of their stuff, especially the new stuff. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Portly Island Boy, which is a, a fun. A fun, um, offensive quote from Scrubs, uh, which everybody looks at horrifically when the person says it. So it's kind of felt okay in the moment. Um, I am currently doing a series of reviews on uh, the longest running, highest selling comic book series of all time. That is called One Piece. And I am hoping that people watch that series to understand why right because it's like like guys this is outsold batman and superman and those things came out in the 30s this came out in 97 and so uh so that is it's me kind of honing my skills on this series that has been around for 20 years and yet most americans can't even uh would not recognize a single thing from it awesome so that's on youtube portland island boy also 
check it out. It's really, really good stuff. I do not know not a thing about One Piece, but they're still very entertaining videos. So check them out. And now it's a part of the show where I end the podcast. See you next month. Martha will be back next month, hopefully, uh, ideally, and maybe me too. We'll see. We'll catch y'all later. us online at www.martha and colby or on twitter and instagram at martha and colby thanks to steven boyd and dj empirical for all things sound thanks to jordan from dreamful podcast for the artwork Shout out to Irene, even though you don't listen to this podcast. Don't forget to rate us five stars and subscribe on Apple Podcast, and we'll talk soon.